Though it pains me to say it, I will. How about them nats? It would be very difficult to have lived in the D.C. metropolitan area this week and not notice that the Nats won the decisive Game 7 of the World Series on Wednesday, earning a rather incredible place in baseball history. As one ESPN article put it, how will the 2019 Nationals be remembered? As giant slayers. Indeed, during their playoff run, the Nats dramatically defeated the team with the second best record in all of baseball, my beloved Los Angeles Dodgers, and ultimately defeated the team with the very best record, the Houston Astros. They emphatically made a name for themselves as resilient, never-give-up fighters during five elimination games, many of which I believe they were trailing. For their efforts, they were exalted in a celebratory parade uh, in downtown D.C. yesterday and bestowed the greatest name and title in baseball, a name and title that is pure joy for many of you seated here to confess. But for me, it's excruciating to roll off the tongue. But confess I must. The Nats, no matter how much I don't want it to be, are the World Series champions. I confess it. Now, Nats fans might love for us to continue to recount the amazing achievements of the 2019 team, or at least continue to hear me suffer through it. But while, but others, particularly my wife, uh, probably the elders, are wondering where I'm going with this, right? Uh, well, here it is. Brothers, sisters, friends, and children, if you are a Nats fan, flying high on the thrill of victory, my prayer is that your joy will increase exponentially tonight as we consider a far superior champion. If you rooted for another team, or for a more serious reason, you find yourself experiencing the agony of defeat in this often heartbreaking world, my prayer is that you find comfort and true hope in the one who made the greatest name for himself and for his people. Or if you couldn't care less about baseball, or just feel indifferent or numb about life, my prayer is that you will be jolted and moved to reverent fear and jubilant expectation for the mighty conqueror who will return. For tonight, we celebrate and exalt the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our principal text is Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read through verse 11, uh, 5 through 11, but we're going to pay the greatest amount of attention here to verse 9. The passage begins at the very bottom of page 980 in the Bibles provided. Please turn there now, and as you do, let me provide some thematic context for Paul's letter. Paul's goal is to encourage Christians uh, in the Roman colony of, of Philippi to continue to faithfully live uh, their lives as God's people, as people whose lives are increasingly marked by love and service for God, and love and service for their brothers and sisters in the church, as well as their broader neighbors in the world. In chapter 2, Paul highlights Jesus, the Savior and only perfect example of such a life. And he makes clear throughout the letter that Jesus is the one in which all must place their trust and find their righteousness. Please follow along now as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is a beautiful and striking retelling of the gospel story. As many have noted, verses 6 through 11 read like a triumphal hymn, building in intensity with every sentence. I must say this is a far superior fight song than Baby Shark. (laughs) We will explore the truths of this heroic Jesus and his achievements, his championship run, if you will, under three headings. Number one, depths of disgrace. We'll look there at verses six through eight. Number two, heights of honor, verse nine. And number three, supreme subjugation, verses 10 through 12. Let's dive into this first point, depths of disgrace. Sadly, in this world, and perhaps especially here in D.C., our leaders and heroes too often make a name for themselves through disgrace and humiliation. Scandals due to moral indiscretions and self-serving ambition occur almost daily, even hourly if you track Twitter. However, this is not the case with Jesus. Jesus' disgrace is not on account of his sins, for he was sinless, but on account of his people's sins. Do you get that? Jesus descended into the depths of disgrace to pull his people out of their disgrace. If this seems foreign thought to you, it's probably helpful to go back to the beginning of the story, to the book of Genesis, and to the account of our first parents, to the account of the first scandal, mankind's rebellion against God's benevolent rule and reign. The first chapters of Genesis reveal God's creation of all things in a span of six days. On the sixth day, we're told that he created one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve. He placed them in a garden paradise, gave them dominion over all creation, and commanded them to build a beautiful civilization. And God also commanded them, under penalty of death, to refrain from eating from just one tree in that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But our first parents did not obey. They were deceived by the serpent Satan into doubting God's care for them and believing that eating the forbidden fruit would make, them, make for them a name and a title, God and lawgiver. For this, they were punished, bearing the curse of sin and death, a mark passed on to all humanity. But God didn't leave them without hope. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we find the thread of hope that is weaved into the entire fabric of the Bible. There we read in God's curse of the, ser- of the serpent, a promise. He promised that he, God, will send a son from the woman to crush the head of the serpent and break the bonds of slavery to sin and death. He also explains that in doing so, that heroic son will pay a price, 
He'll be stricken on the hill. Heal. This is the redemptive mission that Jesus took up. To crush the serpent and rescue his people from their fall. Verses 6 through 8 show how Jesus made himself low to accomplish this mission. For the glory of God and the good of his people, he did this. Let's consider the depths of disgrace he was willing to endure. Down he went in verse 6. Grasping not the endless riches and glory of heaven, but letting it go to begin his condescension. Down he went in verse 7. The God of all creation becoming a servant. Humbly to serve all humanity. And further down in verse 6 he goes taking the form of a frail and needy human. Can you imagine the maker of heaven and earth subject to hunger and fatigue? Down further he went in verse 8. In in obedience to God the Father, he endured the humiliation of death at the hands of those he created. Even as they mocked and reviled him, beat and spit upon him, Still, he sunk further in verse 8. Not just any death, but death by cruel, cruel crucifixion. He died not only in excruciating pain from being nailed to a cross, but also in excruciating humiliation as he hung for all to see. And yet we know he sunk still further as his lifeless body was laid in a tomb beneath the earth. As the hymn in Christ alone puts it, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. In his life and death, Jesus proved that the depth of his disgrace was far surpassed by the depth of his love and obedience. But if this story ended in the grave, There'd be no victory. In the darkness of that tomb, the power of curse, the power of the curse of sin and death would seem to have won. But as we heard in Pastor Mike's sermon from 2 Kings chapter 25 this morning, God does not forsake his promises. When all seemed lost and dark, hope remained. For God's light still remained. And this brings us to our second point, heights of honor. Let's reread Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, based on the humiliation he went through, right, and his obedience and his humble service, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This, this passage, this, this beautiful hymn, reaches its high point in verse 9 where Paul lets us know that Jesus won his humble descent and a now is now a triumphant ascent let's revel in the heights of honor that Jesus received when he finished his mission here the lyrics of Christ alone again ring true then bursting forth in glorious day Up from the grave, he rose again. Jesus' resurrection proved that God the Father 
was satisfied with his obedience and sacrifice on behalf of his people. This was the part of the incredible reward Jesus received. He got his life back. And still, he went up. As he ascended back into heaven, and still further up, highly exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God the Father on high. Where Revelation 4 tells us that the four living creatures surround the throne, never ceasing to proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And still, his honors ascend higher. For verse 9 tells us that Jesus received the name that is above all names. Truth, his name already bore that, right? The name Jesus, Yeshua, means Lord, Yahweh, is salvation. And the very name, the Lord, right, Yahweh, proclaims to us that he is, Jesus is, mighty, faithful, life-giving, and eternal. Consider the, apostles were, the Apostle Peter's words from Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Revelation 5, where we hear this new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. For God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of, and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Brothers and sisters, this Jesus is our risen and highly exalted champion. How can we not rejoice? More than that, how can we not respond in our deeds of love and service to him and each other. Brothers and sisters, serving each other is difficult and challenging at times. But dig deep, as Christ did. He showed us that the way up here is often down. But just as he rose again to glory, so will you. So be generous with each other. Be generous with your time, with your resources, and with your hearts. Remember the promise of Revelation 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Dig deep. Don't be afraid to go down to the depths. For our Lord already made a path. Unbelievers, I hope you can see that Jesus made the greatest name for himself and now shares it, gives it to whomever would repent from their rebellion and believe in him for life-saving righteousness. What is your response to this offer tonight? This question brings us to our final point, supreme subjugation. And as we consider it, let's read again 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verses 10 through 11 explain the unrivaled unrivaled extent of Jesus' authority in bearing the name above all names. In doing so, these verses also strongly confront us with the reality that all people, no matter their religion, no matter their background, no matter their life choices, professions, or names, all will someday stand before the victorious Jesus. All roads lead to him. Everyone, the living and the dead, those in heaven, those in hell, will respond in subjugation to Jesus. All will bow and all will confess him as Lord. Notice clearly in the text, there's no neutral, there's no indifferent, and there's no defiant response. Indeed, some will bow and confess his victory in joyful ecstasy. Many, maybe most, will bow and confess in bitterness and horror, but confess they will. And so again I ask, how will you respond? I tell you that acknowledging the nationals as champions is bitter for me. But unbelieving friends and children having to bow and confess Jesus as Lord as an unbeliever on that day will be an agony of agonies. For no hope will remain for you. So I plead with you now to heed the kind invitation and warning from God's own words. He says in Psalm 2, verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And he says in Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Won't you humble yourself and join the saints in joyfully completing that second verse in Christ alone. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Please pray with me. Dear Father, we praise you. We praise and exalt your Son, our risen King, our Savior, our great champion, Christ Jesus. We thank you for the work he did, his humility, and his perfect obedience on our behalf. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that he's coming back. We pray, Lord, that 
this reality would stick with everyone tonight. I pray that we would all leave, no matter what state we came in, rejoicing tonight that our Savior lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.